This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our brief spring hiatus, and we have a focus this week on human rights. We'll get reaction to the end of the historic genocide trial in Guatemala and look at rising concerns in Honduras. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. The only major opposition news network in Venezuela has changed hands. The TV channel Globovision has long criticized the leftist government of the late Hugo Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro. But with the change in ownership, the station will now move toward more moderate coverage. The new owner, businessman Juan Domingo Cordero, says Globovision will take a politically neutral position. Venezuelan media analyst Oscar Llorera described one of the reasons for the station's sale. Its media coverage has been in constant opposition. And it's not only critical, it's outside of the professional journalism ethics of Venezuela. And in our country, the ethics are the law. The Venezuelan government has repeatedly fined Globovision and recently threatened to withhold its broadcasting license. Brazil joined Argentina and Uruguay this week as one of the first Latin American countries to legalize same-sex marriage. A council that oversees the nation's judicial system ruled that public notaries cannot withhold marriage licenses from homosexual couples that live together. The full recognition of same-sex marriage in Brazil still awaits congressional voting on a fiercely debated gay marriage law. Police forces in Honduras may be getting away with murder. A string of gang members have gone missing after run-ins with national police, leading journalists to describe the gang members as victims of federal death squads. In one instance, members of the 18th Street Gang were found shot in the head with tightly bound hands after police visited their home. Honduras currently has the highest murder rate in the world. With the allegations of extrajudicial killings, analysts now question the $30 million in law enforcement funding the U.S. has given Honduras in the last two years. We'll have more on this topic later in the program. Pope Francis of Argentina condemned what he calls a cult of money, referring to a global obsession with financial gain. The Pope spoke to ambassadors in the Vatican about the financial crisis and described how radical free market economies have caused many societies to view human beings as consumer goods. He called world leaders to give greater assistance to the poor. A construction crew in Belize destroyed one of the nation's largest Mayan pyramids. The private road-building company bulldozed much of the 2,300-year-old pyramid to use its limestone slabs for gravel. The deputy prime minister of Belize called for full prosecution of those responsible, including the project contractor and the owner of the land surrounding the pyramid. Some politicians fear the pyramid's destruction will reduce tourism growth in Belize. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. At the end of last week, a Guatemalan court sentenced former dictator Efrain Rios Montt to 80 years in prison, the first time a country had tried a former ruler successfully on genocide charges. 
the court found Rios Montt complicit in the deaths of more than 1,700 indigenous Ixchil Mayans during Guatemala's civil war that ended in the mid-1990s. The court also ruled families of the victims should be able to seek compensation for their loss through funds set up for victims of the war. Further, the court ruled the Guatemalan government should officially apologize for genocidal policies during the war and establish an official day of remembrance to fight genocide. To get a reaction to the verdict, we spoke this week to Katherine Johnson of the D.C.-based Guatemala Human Rights Commission. Here are excerpts from her conversation conducted via Skype. Well, it's really important for various reasons. First of all, um, and most sort of immediately is for the victims. Um, certainly, in the, you could see it in the courtroom, right, as the, as the verdict was passed down, as the judge was calling for silence, the, nonetheless, the courtroom erupted into applause, into song, um, people were on their feet, they were ecstatic, and there was, there was celebration certainly outside of the courtroom all day by the victims and their attorneys and everybody else who has worked now 12 years just trying to push this case through the Guatemalan court system. The, the case was first introduced in 2001 in Guatemala. It's also incredibly important, as Judge Barrios said in, as she was reading the sentence, this genocide didn't just touch the immediate victims. It affected all of Guatemala. It, uh, it, it divided Guatemala. It left scars in the historic memory of the country. And so this, this verdict will hopefully help Guatemala start to heal itself as a country, move past the incredible violence that has plagued it in recent years, and and move past many of the divisions that that you can see throughout the country between, for example, those that were in the military and those that were not. Now, it also has international significance because it's the first time any head of state has been found guilty of genocide by a domestic court. So many think that this may help neighboring countries in El Salvador, in Nicaragua and Honduras, and even throughout Latin America, move toward also holding... Um, holding people accountable for crimes of the past because all throughout Latin America there were similar atrocities, not necessarily genocide, but similar atrocities that were committed. We're, we're talking about the various civil wars that happened during the 80s and 90s in Central America. Exactly. Central America and, and South America as well. It is confusing to me and I, I think to others what, what was happening at the end of this particular trial. We there was a, a ruling from the Constitutional Court in Guatemala about bringing another judge into the process. There, there was talk that there would have to be a, a repeat of testimony and, testimony and, and almost a retrial. Uh, what happened in those closing weeks? Can you help sort that out for us, please? Sure. Certainly, the first thing to understand is that the defense filed over a hundred what we would translate as injunctions or motions to higher courts to try to to try to stall or derail the, the process. And so the Constitutional Court, well first the Court of Appeals and then eventually the Constitutional Court had to rule on a, a myriad of issues. Now one of those issues was way back in 2011 a judge named uh, Judge Patricia Flores, who was a pre-trial judge, had been forced to recuse herself from the from the trial. The defense forced her to recuse herself. So a, a, a second pre-trial judge was put on the case, which is Judge Galvez. He denied some of the the testimony, or sorry, so some of the evidence that the defense submitted because it had nothing to do, it, it wasn't valid, it had nothing to do with the case, and so he wouldn't wouldn't allow them to um, enter it into evidence. 
So the Constitutional Court ruled on that. The, the defense appealed that, and the Constitutional Court said that the uh, that the the high risk court who was hearing the case had to admit that evidence after all. And that the the recusal of Judge Flores wasn't valid. She took that, she interpreted that really broadly to say that the trial had to be rewound to that pretrial stage when she was first forced to recuse herself and that she would have to admit that evidence, but that the entire trial to date, which was, we were very close to a verdict at that point, that the whole trial was, was thus null and had to be redone, even though the constitutional court never said that. And so she annulled the trial, which of course the prosecution appealed that back to the constitutional court and the problem was the Constitutional Court never really handed down a very clear verdict on whether that annulment stood or not. And so, but they did tell Judge Flores, they handed the case back to Judge Flores to admit the evidence that had been denied before, but told her she had 48 hours to hand the case back over to the trial judge, to Judge Barrios. And so she did. She was forced to. Um, and, and eventually, after more than two weeks uh, delay, the case was uh, handed back to Judge Barrios and eventually reached the verdict that we all saw. The defense is continuing to claim, though, that that annulment by Judge Flores stands, even though the verdict has already been passed down. And so they will, they're continuing to appeal, and we can expect to see many more appeals by the defense. This raises the question of, is this really over at this state? We have... Um General Rios Montt in jail for a few days and in actually prison for a few days and then in the hospital uh, for various health reasons due to his age. But um, this verdict is not the final chapter, is it? I don't think that this verdict is the final chapter in this particular case or in the uh, the process for finding justice for crimes of the past in Guatemala. I think, like I said, we can expect to see many more appeals by the part of the defense. The prosecution um, also has the chance, there is, remember, two defendants. There was Rios Montt, but then there was also the head of his uh, his military intelligence, Rodrigo Sanchez, and he was found not guilty for both genocide and crimes of humanity. So prosecution has a chance, has the chance to appeal that as well and try to uh, retry um, General Rodrigo Sanchez. So either way, there, there can be appeals either, we can expect to see appeals on one or both sides. But there are many, many, the, the genocide in the East Shield Triangle was one atrocity amongst a bloody 36-year civil war. And they are one ethnicity that was targeted amongst the 23 Mayan, just Mayan groups in, in Guatemala. Actually, if we go to statistics, it's not even 1% of all those who were, who were killed or disappeared during the war, is it? No, according to the United Nations uh, Commission for Histor Historical Clarification, there were 200,000 people that were killed, including at least 45,000 who were disappeared or kidnapped, and, and nobody knows what happened to them. What does this case, in your opinion, say about the growing independence of the judiciary in Guatemala? I think because of the... The processes that I was just talking about, the, the incredible confusion, what it says is that Guatemala's justice system has advanced amazingly, both its courts and its ability to prosecute a case. There's been incredible strengthening of the public prosecutor's office at the same time that 
there's been an effort to create an independent judiciary with these high-impact courts. But what it also shows us is there is incredible political pressure on these judges. There was death threats against the judges. There was rumors of a million-dollar bribe offered to one of the judges. Um, many of the judges, there's, they will probably never be safe in Guatemala again, physically. Thank you very much, Catherine Johnson of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission. Join us today on Latin Pulse via Skype. Thanks so much. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. It's campaign season in Honduras, with six months until that country's presidential election. But with Honduras as the front line in Central America's drug war and politics still unsettled from the coup in 2009, human rights are taking center stage before the elections. We spoke to Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research about Honduras. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded discussion. It's really quite sinister at the moment. Um, you have, there's a moment of opportunity now, I think, with um, coming out of the resistance movement to the coup, uh, a fairly strong new party called Libre, um, which is opposed to you know, both of the traditional parties, the Liberal Party and the National Party that have been uh, really in control of the country uh, since since the 80s and, and since before that as well. Libre is, you know, getting a lot of popular support. They have uh, candidates uh, throughout the country for, for the legislature. They have a very strong presidential candidate who is Xiomara Castro, uh, the wife of um, a deposed uh, uh, president, uh, Pres- president Manuel Zelaya, who was removed via coup in 2009. Uh, she is currently leading in the polls uh, between 23 and 25 percent, um, so six or seven points uh, ahead of uh, the next contestant, um, who is polling at about 18 percent. And um, so and that she's running against the two traditional parties there. That's in right. Honduras, which have been the two present parties dating back to times when there wasn't really much of a democracy there. Well, that's right. It goes, the, these parties go back to the 19th century, and, and, and you've sort of had off and on limited democracy and various military dictatorships, the, the last uh, significant one, of course, being in the um, 70s and early 80s. Supposedly, the National Party is more conservative, the Liberal Party sort of more left-leaning, but most, uh, I, I think, most independent observers consider them to be both fairly right-leaning and in favor of defending the status quo. Uh, of course, the status quo socially and economically in Honduras is, uh, you know, the story of a country that is one of the poorest. Uh, it's the third poorest in the hemisphere. Uh, it's got the uh, one of the highest levels of income disparity, uh, so huge inequalities. Um, and is struggling with uh, an astounding rate of crime uh, at the moment. It's uh, it leads the world, does it not? That's right. It's um, you know between eighty five and, and ninety um, homicides per one hundred thousand. Uh, it's it's absolutely atrocious. In, in the U.S., just just to give uh, some 
reference point. The U.S. has uh, two to three um, per 100,000. So you can just imagine. Um, it's, it's a dangerous place. And uh, it's a dangerous place for political candidates of this political opposition, of uh, this new Libre party. Um, there have been a number that have been killed, uh, various uh, local candidates, pre-candidates before the primaries that were held uh, last November. Uh, they continue to get threats, attacks, and a lot of people expect this to intensify with the objective of making a lot of these candidates uh, withdraw or preventing them from conducting effective campaigns. Obviously, if they're uh, fearful for their lives, they're not going to be out in the street campaigning as they should. This violence is a result of the drug war, is it not? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, we see a direct correlation between the coup occurring and, uh, you know, the weakening of the institutions of Honduras and the surge, the, the enormous surge in violence, uh, which has just grown exponentially over the last few years. Uh, so, yes, drug trafficking seems to be very prevalent in Honduras, as it is in a lot of Central America. But for some reason, Honduras is much worse. Uh, many people believe that has a lot to do with these broken institutions. Uh, the coup uh, led to a great deal of empowerment of the security forces of both the military and the police. Uh, it, was, it was, of course, a military coup. There was no... Um, uh, justice afterwards. I mean, none of the perpetrators of the coup um, were prosecuted in any way. In fact, there was an amnesty law that let them off the hook. A military coup, but the Congress was 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 party to it, was it not? No, absolutely. The Congress, which again was dominated by these traditional parties, um, the liberal and national parties, uh, they agreed with you know getting rid of. Um, uh, Manuel Zelaya in a un very undemocratic way since he was uh, put into a plane and forced into exile in, in Costa Rica and then ended up in Dominican Republic uh, for, for months. So, so yeah, we're, we're dealing with um, a very undemocratic uh, uh, sort of um, uh, political forces in uh, Honduras. As usual, when we talk about violence, it we, we're probably not talking about one causal reason. Some would argue that the past government's problems, even before Zelaya, related to um, the policies, the anti-gang policies, the Manodura policies that were used, the Iron Fist policies that were used uh, against gangs. Some would also argue that, that the violence is, is because they're, they're, Honduras is seen as a front in the drug war that the U.S., has a presence in Honduras too. Well, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, what characterizes a lot of this violence is that um, the security forces are allegedly implicated. Um, and there have been a series of recent articles from the Associated Press that kind of show this well, um, that discuss the reactivation of death squads uh, within the police. Um, and of course, Honduras has a sad history of death squads. Uh, in the 80s, death squads were very active in attacking the uh, political opposition. Uh, there were a lot of forced disappearances. And of course, when you hear forced disappearances, it's a disappearance of someone generally for forever. They never turn up again, or maybe their body will turn up one day. So forced disappearance, you pretty much can read that as, as death without, without necessarily the physical evidence of that. 
Um, and, and so we're now we're seeing a reactivation of these death squads. Uh, again, the Associated Press has covered this recently. You have in charge of the uh, national police, uh, the top guy uh, of the police in Honduras uh, is Juan Carlos Bonilla. He has um, uh, a record of suspected involvement in uh, death squads stretching back over a decade where he's believed to have been active himself in a police death squad and to have carried out killings or a number of pending charges against him. He is currently running the police. And uh, according to you know numerous reports, the U.S. Uh, was instrumental in him um, occupying that position and is still supporting him today. Uh, so this is quite worrying. And the U.S. is pouring a huge amount of funding into both the police and the military of Honduras. And why did the U.S. want him in particular in this position? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure anyone's quite sure. He is seen as very efficient in carrying out purges of uh, police. And of course, uh, one could expect that of a death squad commander. Um, but the reports that we're hearing is that he is carrying out purges, but it's one faction of the police against another. And they're both, uh, it, it's, it's more than two. I mean, you have many factions, it seems, within, within the police and, and within the military as well, that are connected to drug trafficking organizations in, in many cases. Um, there's a lot of suspicion of their involvement in drug trafficking. And so you're seeing confrontations between those factions. And yes, one faction is taking out another faction, but that doesn't mean you have a cleaner faction that's taking over. Uh, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. So is this also beyond death squads, the sort of extrajudicial killings, uh, justice in the street by police who decide it's, it's better to execute these people now than to drag them through the court system. Right. But this isn't just, you know, a couple of bad apples in the police force that decide, oh, um, you know, we're going to go out tonight and, you know, shoot a couple of, you know, thugs or suspected delinquents. Um, this, these are very well-organized operations from all the reports we're getting. And there's one that was caught on video recently uh, where you see um, you know, a, a car, an unmarked car uh, full of, um, you know, people that clearly are well-trained in military sort of tactics, uh, jumping out and, um, and just assassinating a couple of kids in the street. Um, other kids ran off and managed to, to escape. Uh, but you, when you see that, you definitely get the impression of very well-organized operations. And, and many people believe that this is coming from the very top. One very controversial case that seems to continue to resonate in Honduras is the case where um, indigenous people um, in in a canoe were assassinated um, from a helicopter, um, and I believe a U.S. military helicopter. Am I incorrect? Well, you're only slightly incorrect. Uh, they were um, assassinated um, uh, in the course of an operation that involved a lot of U.S. agents, at least 10 DEA agents and a number of U.S. contractors. The helicopters in those operations certainly looked like military helicopters. Um, for all purposes, they were. They had mounted M60, you know, uh, high-caliber machine guns, and um, but they belonged to the State Department. 
so that gives you a sense of how militarized, um, you know, various civilian agencies of our government have become. Certainly the State Department, um, I, I think few people realize that, you know, the State Department in charge of diplomacy also has military hawk helicopters and military contractors working for it. So we have the Drug Enforcement Agency and the State Department working with Honduran um, police and military in indigenous zones um, as part of the drug war. That's right. And what's interesting about the zone um, where these assassinations occurred, uh, where four people were killed on this canoe, um, two of them were women uh, believed to be pregnant, um, one young man of 14 years of age and a, a young man of 20 years of age. Um, and uh, Yes, they are operating in an area that, interestingly, was also a platform for um, intervention in Nicaragua uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, you had some bases in this very remote region of the northeast, the Mosquitia region, that had been set up by the U.S., where you had Contras that were training and that were going over the border uh, into Nicaragua. So what's interesting now is that you have a remilitarization that's taking place with um, where they're reopening some of these bases. Some of the forward operating bases that were there back in the 80s are being reopened. And now, of course, the grand pretext is the drug war. Um, and, you know, they uh, track some of the planes that come in, drop off drugs, and then go after the drugs and so on. But beyond this, what we're also seeing is the U.S. playing a very, very active leading role in this so-called drug war. Uh, in this case, uh, this operation, uh, according to a number of sources, was really run by the DEA. Um, and the DEA, uh, you know, played a, a direct role in these killings. Uh, it's been reported by some of the Honduran police agents that were on this operation that the instructions given to the helicopter to shoot at the boat were given by a DEA agent. The ambassador to the U.S. from Honduras has been in Washington and making statements about this, saying that indeed there were drugs on that canoe at one time. Maybe they had been dropped off before, and so these people were involved in drug smuggling. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting accusation, but that needs to be proved. Um, certainly everybody in the community um, that has been interviewed, and I was involved in uh, a lengthy investigation where we did a lot of community interviews. All of the people that know these individuals, including, you know, some of the local authorities, uh, the the mayor, uh, one of the local judges, etc., uh, they all say that these were outstanding citizens and that they had no known um, links to drug trafficking. So, you know, this really appears to be, um, you know, a smear campaign against these these individuals that don't have, uh, you know, many resources to defend themselves. And, of course, it's very convenient to just simply, you know, sweep aside the problem and say, oh, no, they're all drug traffickers. Well, there's, there's no real evidence of that. And should any evidence of that turn up, it doesn't justify the manner in which um, a boat full of children, women, elderly people, a few young adults uh, was shot at. Uh, in what appears to be a completely indiscriminate manner. You mentioned these bases in the Mosquitia in, in this particular region, tracking drug flights and other things. Some in Washington would argue then that this is the front line in the drug war and that there are positive things that are happening there. This may be just an example of collateral damage in a war. 
Well, yeah, that's right. But what justifies this sort of collateral damage? I mean, is the seizure of, you know, half a ton of cocaine, which was the case in this operation, which four individuals were killed, does that justify it? I think it's quite remarkable to see what the reaction of the State Department was after this operation. One of the first things they did was to pretty much disregard the deaths that had occurred and congratulate the Honduran authorities on uh, an operation that was well done, that was successful. Um, and of course, um, not being very upfront about the fact that the U.S. had essentially controlled the operation and led the operation. So they were congratulating themselves. Um, what we're not seeing so much of in the mainstream media are accounts of uh, killings that really match these death squad patterns uh, that are targeting other individuals from various sectors of civil society. And we're seeing campesino leaders, we're seeing journalists, we're seeing lawyers, human rights lawyers, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, various social leaders that are being targeted um, for killings, for threats, uh, for various forms of attack. Alex Main, thank you so much. Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research joins us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>